Former Presidents Barack Obama, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton are all signaling they are open to publicly taking the forthcoming COVID vaccine in an effort to promote its use and to instill confidence. This is what former President Barack Obama had to say on Wednesday to Sirius XM Radio. Take a listen. I promise you that when it's then made for people who are less at risk, I will be taking it and, and you know, I may end up taking it on, on TV or having it filmed just so that people know that uh, I, I, I trust this science. Okay. And what I don't trust is, is getting COVID. I think the problem may be that the phrase Operation Warp Speed might have put some people off. And I think folks have presumed that it's cutting corners. And it's really important that the public understands that safety corners haven't been cut. These clinical trials are large and well-designed. And our oversight is our normal processes. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you're listening to I Am Bio. In a single day last week, the United States tracked 200,000 new cases of COVID-19 and 100,000 hospitalizations in a single day. Robert Redfield, the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, fretted that the worst is yet to come. By Inauguration Day, January 20th, America could be in a full-blown crisis. As the consequences of pandemic fatigue fill our nation's ICUs, Pfizer and Moderna are poised to become the first two companies to get authorization to vaccinate Americans against COVID. Usually, the way it works is the Food and Drug Administration makes that call, and then the CDC, or Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, execute its plan to maximize societal impact. But there is simply no time to waste, so the FDA and CDC are running their processes concurrently. It's the job of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices to determine the most at-risk U.S. populations that get vaccinated first. The ACIP is made up of 15 experts selected by the Health and Human Services Secretary with a wide range of medical and scientific expertise. Last week, that committee designated that Group 1A would be healthcare workers and nursing home residents. The first doses could be shipped out to hospitals, long-term care facilities, and doctor's offices this month. It's also the job of the CDC to make doubly sure that vaccines are safe and that our evolving national vaccination strategy is sound. How will this all play out as the pandemic spikes and America's hospitals are potentially overrun this winter? We've got a lot of questions. And today, IMBio has the CDC's COVID-19 vaccine lead, to give us answers. We are so fortunate today to have as our guest, Dr. Nancy Messonnier. She's the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases. She leads the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's efforts on COVID-19 vaccines, including distribution, administration, implementation, safety, and access. 
With the recent news from Pfizer and Moderna, we have a real I Am Bio newsmaker with us today. Dr. Messonnier began her public health career in 1995 as an Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer. This is an elite group at the CDC who act as sort of disease detectives. It's so important that Americans understand the rigor and scientific expertise brought to bear before any new vaccine reaches the public. Nancy, thank you so much for making time and welcome to I Am Bio. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today and to talk about this really important topic at this really important juncture. Well, I think you may be the busiest woman in public health right now. And before we talk about um, your full plate, I have to ask you about your start at the CDC back in the 90s. The EIS, or Epidemic Intelligence Service, is kind of like the special forces of disease fighting with highly trained commissioned officers. What was that experience like? You know, when I came to CDC in 1995 for my two-year EIS fellowship, I thought I'd go back to Philadelphia, which is where I'm from. But within six months of being here, I had done my first outbreak investigation, and I knew I didn't want to be anywhere else. It was a meningitis outbreak in Gregg County, Texas, which was a place I had never been before. I had been in residency training, and I had done clinical work, but there I was, all of a sudden, out in the field. I was able to help stop the outbreak of meningitis, but I also did the first community estimate of the effectiveness of meningitis vaccine. Mm. It really got me hooked, and frankly, I have never looked back. Everyone wants to know about the timing and when they will be able to get vaccinated for COVID. Um, In the CDC's eyes, where do we currently stand when it comes to the development and distribution of a COVID-19 vaccine? So the U.S. government has invested in six vaccines, but there are are actually over 200 vaccines in development here and internationally. Four out of six are in phase three clinical trials in the United States, and three have reported more than 90 percent efficacy in clinical trials. Two of the vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, have submitted packages to FDA for authorization or approval. And states have been preparing for and exercising for pandemic vaccine distribution for years. All of them will be ready to receive vaccine and ready to distribute and administer vaccine as early as this month. So realistically, how long would it take a vaccine once rolled out to be fully available in the U.S. for everyone who wants to take it? We expect the first vaccines to be available in December, which is less than a year after this virus was first identified. But initially, supplies will be limited. As the clinical trials go on, I hope more vaccine candidates will be available. Based on current data, vaccines for the general public will be available by second quarter of 2021. So one of the most important responsibilities of the ACIP is to issue recommendations to the states on vaccine prioritization. And your committee is actually meeting right after our interview to finalize some of those recommendations. Can you tell our listeners who will get vaccinated first and second, et cetera? ACIP has been holding public meetings since June to hear the latest data on who the pandemic is affecting so they can make recommendations that will have the greatest impact. To date, more than 240,000 healthcare workers have contracted COVID-19 and more than 850 have died. According to recent estimates, deaths in long-term care facilities account for 40% 
of all COVID-19 deaths nationwide. That's why ACIP is recommending healthcare personnel and long-term care facility residents and staff be vaccinated first when a safe and effective vaccine becomes available. So we've seen incredible phase three efficacy levels of as high as 95% from Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and pretty strong efficacy from AstraZeneca as well. How does the striking efficacy signals of these vaccines inform the CDC's work? The numbers certainly look promising based on media reports. It is important, though, that we wait for the complete scientific process to be finished. That means review of the data by FDA and CDC and our advisory committees. If the data is correct, it means these vaccines can be very effective in protecting individuals from disease. I also hope we will find that they'll be effective in preventing transmission. It means that we can get high vaccine coverage, and that would mean we would stop the pandemic. I certainly hope data on efficacy combined with data on safety will encourage people who might have been hesitant about vaccination to reconsider. At your November 23rd meeting, there was discussion of modeling that suggested different prioritization based upon whether the vaccine is infection blocking or disease blocking. First of all, can you explain that difference? And do we know yet which category the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine fall into, infection blocking or disease blocking? Sure. So an infection-blocking vaccine would protect against future infection and mean someone wouldn't spread the virus. A disease-blocking vaccine, it protects an individual from getting sick, but it doesn't protect future infection or mean that you can't spread the disease. So the idea here is that if it's an infection-blocking vaccine, it is the possibility to achieve herd immunity because it actually protects you from transmitting as well as getting it yourself. And the bottom line is we don't yet know what category the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines fall into. And that's not unusual. We frequently don't know that level of detail about a vaccine at the time that the vaccine is authorized. Reports from the clinical trial data so far suggest that both vaccines prevent most, if not all, severe covid But that's also among a very small number of patients in clinical trials, and we don't really know yet if the vaccines prevent, for example, mild disease. We also don't know yet how long protection from COVID-19 vaccines will last. And that's why we need to continue the rigorous strategies of these vaccines to answer all of these questions and to understand how the vaccines perform outside of clinical trials. Once we get more data, ACIP will meet and will continue to amend their recommendations based on this new evidence. One of the unique logistical challenges of the Pfizer vaccine is the temperature at which it must be stored, negative 70 degrees Celsius. How will this cold storage requirement impact who gets which vaccine? Yeah, it's important for your listeners to know that there are multiple vaccines under development and they use different platforms or structures and have slightly different mechanisms to elicit an immune response. So these first vaccines are mRNA vaccines that work by teaching our cells to make a protein that triggers an immune response inside our bodies, which then protects us if we're exposed to the real COVID-19 virus. Both of the mRNA vaccines currently require storage at colder temperatures, and the Pfizer vaccine requires storage at what we call ultra-low cold temperatures. Many doctor's offices don't have the capacity to store frozen vaccine. Operationally, for now, 
it may mean bringing the people to the vaccine as opposed to bringing the vaccine to people. Health departments and pharmacies and health systems have all been working hard to make sure that we're ready for these vaccines as soon as they're released. So companies like Johnson & Johnson and Novavax also have very promising vaccines not far behind with their data, and there are other promising candidates um, coming along behind those, as you mentioned. Is there a process by which the CDC helps states determine which vaccine should go to which patient populations? Yeah, that's an important question to look at down the line. ACIP helps us prioritize when vaccines are limited. And when considering a recommendation, ACIP thinks about the number of people who get the disease and who are hospitalized and who die, the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine, but also the ease of operationalizing the vaccines. And some vaccines may be better suited to implement in certain settings. So Moderna, Pfizer, and AstraZeneca all have two-dose vaccines. Can you speak to the importance of that second dose? How does it impact your protection level if you skip it, let's say? And how do you even track who's gotten the first dose and the second dose? The media has reported that both doses of the free vaccine candidates are over 90% effective, and two of those are over 95%, but that's only after the second dose. Many vaccines we recommend for children, adolescents, and adults require them to get more than one dose. The bottom line is, if it's a two-dose vaccine, you need to get the second dose. There are quite a few challenges to ensuring people return for the second dose and to return for the second dose that matches the dose they had initially. So some examples of why people don't return include that they just don't have the time or they forgot, or they had side effects like a really sore arm after the first dose. Some people may not realize how important that second dose is. But we've anticipated this, and I'm optimistic we'll get good return rates. Each patient will actually get a second dose reminder card with the date to come back for their second dose. And we have a new Safe Health Checker program that allows people to opt in to have their health checked after getting vaccinated and reminds them when to go back. Most immunization registries also have reminder recall features, and hospitals are actually scheduling those second-dose appointments when you get your first dose. So we have lots of checks and balances in place. I understand the CDC is studying the length of time it will take for the immunity conferred by the vaccine to become protective. What's the process to determine that? And what's the range of time we might expect based on other vaccines? I mean, I, for one, remember taking gammaglobulin to cover me until my hepatitis vaccine took effect. That's a great question, and we don't have the answer yet. However, in general, immunity is achieved within 7 to 10 days. But after a vaccine is authorized or approved, we still conduct studies to assess effectiveness and to understand more about the protection a vaccine provides under real-world conditions outside of clinical trials. And I think some of these questions are things that we're only going to know after we implement the vaccine broadly in the population. You know, schools are at the forefront of a lot of thinking and planning these days. Could you say a little bit about what parents can expect in terms of vaccinating children against COVID? Yeah, I think that's a really important topic for parents to understand. One of the pharmaceutical companies has started with clinical trials in children, but it really will be a while before vaccines are available for children. And that means we're going to have to protect children through our normal recommendations, that is social distancing, wearing a mask, washing our hands, staying home when we're sick. 
And it also means that everybody who is surrounding children needs to do their best to keep the COVID-19 from being transmitted to children. And hopefully this spring, that will also mean getting vaccinated to protect yourselves, but also to protect your communities. So we understand that the Food and Drug Administration Advisory Committee will be evaluating the Pfizer vaccine for emergency use authorization on Thursday the 10th. And I think late breaking news is that the Moderna one may be considered as well. Should the FDA grant an emergency use authorization for a COVID vaccine, the next step is review and recommendation by the ACIP. Can you talk us through how this process will work and how quickly it will take place? Sure. And what I would say here is that we're doing everything we can to ensure that there are no wasted moments in between when the vaccine is available and when it can be released. So we're doing everything we can to shorten the lag time. To that end, ACIP will meet within a few days of the FDA Advisory Committee. We expect that ACIP's meeting may even be before FDA's final review is complete and before FDA has actually authorized the vaccine. Our goal is to ensure that safe and effective vaccines get out to the public as rapidly as possible. So those of us who work in the industry or work in science celebrate our unprecedented speed and cooperation and how it has allowed us to move faster than ever before. But it seems to worry the public. Um, Both Pfizer and Moderna were able to go so fast because they used the viral genetic sequence and synthetic biology, a breakthrough approach. A staggering 200 vaccine programs have been initiated worldwide, and there are simply no historical parallels. COVID and vaccines in particular have been the driving priority of the federal government. And within the industry, we've seen unprecedented cooperation and collaboration between companies, nonprofits, and academia. This has been a shining moment for our entire biomedical ecosystem. You've seen our government respond to a lot of infectious disease outbreaks during your decades of leadership. So I have a two-part question for you. In what important ways has the COVID vaccine response been different? And how do we convince the public that our speed has been enabled by so many good things, not by cutting corners due to outside pressure? I think that's a really great question. And I agree with you completely. This is a historic undertaking and a shining moment for the biomedical ecosystem and for the partnerships that um, existed before this effort and that really have supported these efforts and were foundational. What's different, as you've said, is doing everything to get rid of any obstacles that would cause wastage of time through this effort. And I think the problem may be that the phrase Operation Warp Speed might have put some people off. And I think folks have presumed that it's cutting corners. And it's really important that the public understands that safety corners haven't been cut. These clinical trials are large and well-designed. And our oversight is our normal processes, that is, FDA, CDC, our advisory committees, but also the data safety monitoring boards that reviewed the study. And once authorized or approved for use by FDA and recommended by ACIP, the COVID-19 vaccines will continue to be monitored for safety. CDC, along with FDA and other federal partners, will use existing systems to conduct heightened safety monitoring. 
You're right. This is a historic undertaking, and it's really allowed companies to be incredibly innovative. And that gives me a lot of hope, not just for COVID-19 vaccines, but for the future of the vaccine enterprise. This pandemic has demonstrated how a pathogen can brutalize those who lack access to things that contribute to the social determinants of health, things like healthcare quality, nutritious food, clean air, safe living conditions. Historically, we've seen an underrepresentation of Black and brown people in clinical trials and high rates of vaccine hesitancy due to legacies of mistrust and mistreatment. With COVID on a rampage, now is the time to build bridges to overcome that distrust. We have to do a better job explaining the benefits of medical research in a culturally competent way. Can you tell us about your Vaccinate with Confidence program at the CDC? We need to be engaging communities and individuals, using two-way communication to listen, increase collaboration, and build trust in the COVID-19 vaccines. The COVID-19 pandemic has unfortunately exacerbated longstanding systemic health and social inequities and put many people from racial and ethnic minority groups at increased risk of getting sick and dying from COVID-19. A successful vaccination program has the power to put a stop to this. So final question. It's certainly no secret that politics has become enmeshed in the COVID-19 response, perhaps harming public confidence. With a new administration coming in, how do we build back that trust that the CDC and the FDA remain the gold standards and that our processes have not been corrupted or compromised? When I walk into my office on the lobby, on the wall, there's a CDC pledge to the American public. And two of those elements are to base all public health decisions on the highest quality scientific data that is derived openly and objectively and to place the benefits to society above the benefits to our institution. I think we need to follow those principles. Our communication should be regular and consistent across all levels of government. This is not the time for mixed messages. We also need to acknowledge the uncertainty. We have extensive experience with vaccine distribution, administering, and tracking. But this is at a different scale. We need to listen as much as we talk to combat myths and misinformation. Finally, I understand trust is essential. CDC may have lost the trust of some during the COVID-19 response. I hope that transparency through this process will encourage people to get vaccinated. I also hope the voices of our partners like BIO can carry our message to educate and engage Americans as we work together to end the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, I couldn't think of a better place to stop. Thank you so much, Dr. Messonnier, for joining us. We really very much appreciate it. And we're all there supporting you and wishing you the best of luck in the months to come. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate the support of BIO and your community. That's all for today. And don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with family and friends. Also, with COVID vaccines on the way, we need your help to end this pandemic. Please help us spread truth and not virus. Get the facts on vaccination at covidvaccinefacts.org. 